Hello, and welcome to the Palladium Podcast. I'm your host, Wolf Tyvee, Editor-in-Chief of Palladium. I'm joined today by Mark Fasto and Ian Fletcher, who recently wrote a great article for us on industrial policy. It's called The Economic Foundations of Industrial Policy. So we've brought them on to discuss the article and the concepts around it in more detail. Welcome, guys. Thanks for having us on your show. Good to be with you. All right. So to get started, the article is is basically offering a... What it says on in the title basically is a foundation for industrial policy. And the argument in the article is that you know industrial policy comes up occasionally in the discourse, and uh, but it has lacked a rigorous economic foundation uh, that that could give it sort of rhetorical power against free trade economics, and also uh, give it a foundation that would allow us to do it properly in a sustained, uh, rigorous set of policies. So you guys, um, what, what you've put together there is an argument for how the market can't solve uh, can't do everything, basically, that that there are these problems, inefficiencies that are known to the economics literature in pure market economics. And the exploitation of these inefficiencies in the market is both how real businesses make money a lot of the time and how nations are able to kind of get a leg up in, in international trade and in economic development. Yeah, so I, I, I'm curious to to hear what you guys have to say about sort of why you're writing this, uh, how you're thinking about it, how you got onto the topic, um, and we can kind of just go through and summarize the arguments uh, in the article as we go. Sure. Well, the basic idea, as you said, Wolf, is uh, that uh, U.S. economics and economists and policymakers have relied on the the idea that basically, with very few exceptions. Uh, the best economic policy is to leave it to the markets, that the markets will allocate uh, capital most efficiently, mm-hmm. that uh, government interventions are viewed with suspicion because, you know, they don't have the pressures of, of uh, having skin in the game and our bureaucrats and so on, um, and are likely to be captured by special uh, political interests. Uh, the problem is that uh, the market has some very real shortcomings, and those shortcomings happen to be the sweet spots for for technological uh, advance and economic growth. Uh, for example, um, just to take one an example that everybody's familiar with, if you look at all the major technologies in the, in the iPhone, yeah, virtually all of them were originated, funded, not just funded, but actually conceived of and pushed uh, by non-market participants, usually one form, one agency or another of the government. Sometimes it's defense, sometimes it's uh, somebody else. And they get pushed uh, there and not by private sector because at the early stage, the, the big technological advances that really move the economy forward and the new paradigms and that later spread through the economy, uh, changing uh, everything, making everything more efficient. And you begin, they're too risky and, and nobody knows exactly what's going to come out of it. It requires too much investment but, and too long a time frame to prove out an investment for 
private sector actors, unless they're very specifically positioned, we'll talk about that a little bit later, to take the chance. So um, they don't happen. They tend not to happen unless the government actively intervenes. Yeah, this this makes a lot of sense to me. When I've sort of thought it through, you know, deciding what to do with my career and so on, and and just looking at kind of startups and and the so-called technology companies and a lot of what's actually going on there, you look at the incentives for developing a truly new technology, one of these foundational technologies that's going to create a new paradigm. And it's if if you think it through, it actually is very difficult to capture that gain or to have any certainty in in that gain as a as a private actor. You're you're creating this thing that's that's kind of just going to spread everywhere. It's going to underpin everything. It's going to take a lot of investment to get there in the first place. And and just simply because it it has to be so wide ranging and you don't know how it's going to be applied, it's difficult to capture to, to sort of capture the value created uh, privately. And and so that makes total sense that that the market doesn't necessarily invest in those foundational technologies. That's not really where it comes from. It does have to come from these much larger uh, considerations that are that are really the considerations of the state. Now we, of course, we have had <clears throat> and still do have quite a lot of industrial policy in the United States. We just don't call it that. Right. We call it defense. You know, uh, and a lot of the stuff in the iPhone, for example, came out of what are another defense. We have DARPA that does a lot of really good stuff. We have NIH. Of course, we don't call that industrial policy either. That's health. So uh, we do it. But the, the problem is that you can't really call it that, which means you can't talk, think about it systematically. You can't propose, or you can propose, but you politically, it's been impossible to get anywhere with a kind of all of government overview of uh, industrial policy uh, to link together the different elements, which include not only the support industry and support research and innovation in the U.S., but all the trade and other uh, trade policies and currency mm-hmm. policies that are required to not only now think it up here, but actually make it here and realize the benefits and defend off the uh, uh, efforts of other countries to uh, move those industries and technologies um, to where they benefit to their to, to their own home territory. So historically speaking, uh, I'm curious of your analysis of kind of how we got into that situation where it's difficult to talk about industrial policy, where we get into this market orthodoxy. Because historically, you know, pre-war at least, uh, or, or before before the 60s and, and early 70s, America had um, a very active kind of a very active government hand in shaping the economy and in planning out these these longer term uh, growth of growth and development of industries, you know the American School uh, of Economics from the late nineteenth century uh, was, you know, it's very American, obviously, and and it was a school of industrial policy. Uh, Friedrich List, uh, often listed as one of the sort of intellectual fathers of of this kind of thinking, was uh, argue at least arguably an American. He lived in America. Um, well, Alexander and, Hamilton certainly was right, and Hamilton as well. 
And and so how did how did we go from from that? And and that's kind of the the, the thinking that built America's industrial power and, and built America's power in the world in many ways. How did we go from that thinking to kind of what we've what we've seen for the last fifty years of of this uh, free market kind of paradigm? Well, he is perf- a perfect person to answer that because he studied economics at the University of Chicago. Yes, that's true. So let's just back up a little here. And I'll explain how we came to write this article. If you recall your contemporary history back in the 70s, 80s, and the 90s, when the US first began to feel that it was being outcompeted by foreign countries that observably engaged in more explicit governmental direction of the economy than we do. Mm -hmm. And in those days, it was principally Germany and Japan. You can see that there were boomlets, as it were, for industrial policy. There were vogues for industrial policy. And you can see this in a flurry of books and articles and things in the 70s, 80s, and the 90s. And the questions in retrospect that were being asked then were good questions. And the concerns that people had, even though West Germany and Japan were nowhere near as dangerous as China, which is a hostile nuclear armed superpower, The questions were right. However, each of these efforts to get the US to be more serious about having an industrial policy of its own collapsed for one reason or another. The effort in the 80s basically collapsed when Walter Mondale wouldn't embrace the issue in the 84 presidential campaign. Mm -hmm. And the issue in the 90s collapsed when Bill Clinton despite having said things in his campaign at the behest of people like Ira Magaziner and Robert Reich and so forth, he didn't do anything when he was elected. He chose to follow Bob Rubin's lead in pursuing a finance-oriented method for achieving highest prosperity in this country. And one of the reasons why these previous efforts collapsed, we believe, is that industrial policy has never been given a decent theoretical foundation. Now, in American culture, it's normal to kind of snort at the word theoretical and imagine that Americans are practical folk. People only want practical solutions. And theory is something that's only of interest to silly European intellectuals and eggheads in universities. But If you look at the impact upon human beings, when you make very abstract propositions like God is love, all men are endowed with inalienable rights from each according to his abilities to each according to his needs, markets are efficient. In point of fact, the impact of abstract ideas is absolutely enormous. Mm -hmm. And in no field is this more starkly evident than in economics. If you look at Milton Friedman, for example, whose shadow has been cast down to the present day, he did not just announce practical solutions to the problem of inflation, where he failed anyway. And a lot of the stuff that he promoted, like monetarism, people don't even seem to realize this stuff was tested and it didn't work. My point is, abstract theoretical foundations are important and the lack of any such thing for industrial policy has been a liability for those who would advocate it. And this is therefore what we're trying to provide. Now, 
It's only one relatively short article, and it's not written at the standard of rigor or formal expression you would get in an academic journal article. Mm-hmm. But that is deliberate because we want it to be readable by the widest possible range of people. And if you make the effort to think through what it says, I mean, it's long and it, it takes some chewing to grasp, but I think it's understandable by any reasonably intelligent person who reads the business page or has concerns invested in economics. And we have attempted to give an explanation, as Mark said, for why it is that the market does not and never will solve all our economic problems. And then this is not just a matter of obvious things like markets can cause pollution to be emitted or people have concerns about the market outcome of inequality is different than our social value system. The point is that at the level of actual productive industries where wealth is Mm -hmm. created, not just distributed, There are very good reasons why markets, which are a wonderful institution for doing what they can do, are not complete. They're not sufficient. And as you both mentioned, you and Mark, U.S. history makes pretty clear that historically the U.S. has actually responded reasonably rationally to this fact. I mean, all our fundamental technological innovations, with very few exceptions, came out of either the public sector or they came out of the private sector operating under monopoly conditions with governmental sanction. They didn't come out of the free market. Mm -hmm. I mean, some examples just for for listeners would be uh, a familiar one is uh, Bell Labs, the AT&T telephone monopoly laboratory, guaranteed income. Uh, They put a a, a large amount of money aside for research, including very basic research. I didn't have to worry about monetizing the results of that research because, you know, their rates were, they could set rates to cover their, cover their costs uh, and they were insulated from competition by their monopoly position. The other place where it's taken place, a nonprofit, longer term, the basic research has often come out of either uh, government-owned labs, uh, originally mostly by the military, or university, uh, universities, mm-hmm. uh, and, and on the research side, especially uh, the STEM research side, uh, that's almost all federal government in one way or another. In this book we're writing, we have a, one chapter is just a, a survey of what the existing industrial policies of the United States are, and it's very extensive. You know, in a right. way, it proves that we can do it, and some of it's quite good, some of it's not so good proves that we can't do it and we have been doing it. So the question is, well, well, what's the problem? The problem is that um, there are holes in it and uh, the big missed targets. And that often because of the other parts of industrial policy, like uh, trade policy, has allowed the benefits like like pouring you know money into a bucket with the hole in the bottom. Yeah, machinery works in the bucket, and the technology comes out, and then instead of flowing into the U.S. economy, a lot of it flows out. And the biggest the, the biggest users of the uh, National Science Foundation website, you know, where they try to commercialize the stuff they come up with. Guess it's China. It's the Chinese. Yeah. 
So I think it would be helpful to kind of go through then some of this theoretical foundation, uh, starting with the the ways that the market can't do everything. What are the things that the market doesn't do? Why doesn't it do those things? So I, in your in your article, you kind of list a bunch of things, uh, ideas like pricing power, ideas like dynamic efficiency. Uh, I'd love to hear you guys go through that stuff and and give us a little bit more about just a, an intuitive grasp of why it is that the market isn't going to be able to do these these kind of fundamental development innovations and and, uh, and and some of the bigger industrial industrial growth. Let's start with the easy items. Like for a start, you have externalities, which is a familiar concept in economics. It just says that sometimes economic activity leaks costs or benefits beyond the person performing it. So right. if you emit pollution, that's a negative externality. If you create a, a new technology, which other people can imitate and use without having to pay you for it, that's a positive externality. And it's basic Econ 101 that whenever you have an externality, the free market doesn't produce the right answer. Now, people are pretty familiar with negative externalities. Positive externalities are a bit more complicated. Technology is a big one because the patent system can do a lot, but there's a lot that it can't do, particularly with the more fundamental technological ideas, which is why, as Mark had observed, many fundamental technologies were not developed by the free market. Now, the second item I would identify in our list of things markets don't handle well is time horizons. You see, one of the peculiar things about capitalism is that there's nothing about capitalism that guarantees that capitalists will have long time horizons. They have right. whatever time horizons they want to have. That is to say, I'm trying to make the best profit I can over the next six months or I'm a long-term investor buying a piece of land with the idea that 20 years from now, there's going to be a skyscraper on it, or I'm doing technological research and the idea that 20 years from now, I'm going to build an airplane using carbon fiber or whatever. Now, the fact is that in some industries, you see capitalists with long time horizons because they have to in large plane aviation and commercial real estate. But in much of our economy, you don't. And it comes as a surprise to some laissez-faire ideologues that there is absolutely nothing about free markets that prompts capitalists to have time horizons which are long enough to mm -hmm. enable all the kinds of industrial development and economic growth that you could have. So one of the things you want to do with a rational industrial policy is you want to A, encourage capitalists to have long time horizons. And a lot of that is simply about clamping down on financial speculation, because that's when your time horizon can shrink down practically to zero. And the other is for things where the time horizons are just too long for any given private sector player to mm -hmm. manifest those horizons, you have the public sector do it, which is the reason you have Senator Schumer's recent bill in the Senate, which proposes that the National Science Foundation create an entire new directorate for technology. And basically, they become the National Science and Technology Foundation. So they're not just doing pure science. They're actually right. trying to make gadgets, but they're making the kind of gadget which is too fundamental for 
a private sector player. Most people know by now that the internet was not invented in someone's garage. It was invented by government scientists who weren't even trying to make money. Now, mentioning Silicon Valley brings up the third point that we have about well, just, why- Well, just hold on. So just on the on the issue of time horizons, I, I, I just wanted to note that I loved the the argument you made in the article about, you know, the idea is the society goes on practically forever. So the natural time horizon of society, if you're thinking about kind of the social benefit, is very long. And and just like having that kind of counterpoint to the, the uh, private time horizons, which can be quite short or can be whatever they want to be, um, is, I think, a, a key thing that, that needs to be mentioned in that issue of time horizons, just that like there, there is this very natural time horizon to social concerns, which is this very long time horizon simply because society goes on for so long. And I just wanted to make sure that we, we threw that in there. Well, that's, that's, that does make the point very, very clearly. I mean, you can see an illustration of that is the difficulty we have in responding to uh, global warming. A terrible problem, but, you know, We'll all, everybody alive now will probably still, you know, won't be killed by it. Let me put it that way. And it's very tough politically. The, the other thing that affects it in our economy is the way our markets are organized. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about this, uh, but uh, I was an investment banker for 14 years. And most capital that, you know, invest, that flows through the system to be invested um, certainly on the early stage stuff, has um, uh, investment periods hooked onto it. Mm-hmm. Uh, VC firms, it, it does differ. Some will go longer. Five, five years is common. Ten years does exist. But 20, it's just not there. Um, and you can understand it. I mean, that's most of a venture capitalist you know, career or investor's career. It's it's too long, too big a part of the, you know, the interested individual who's risking his money to really be comfortable with. So, and a lot of this stuff uh, takes longer than that. A lot of the important things, you don't even really know what's going to come out. But it's interesting. And, uh, or the government says, look, uh, we, we need this to continue our technological lead in, uh, in defense and aerospace or whatever it is. So we're going to try this thing and we're going to try three other, DARPA did a lot of this, three other kind of blue sky technologies. And yeah, we're going to, it doesn't matter if you lose money because that's not the me- that's not how you measure success here. It's mm-hmm. can you come up with something sooner or better sooner, sooner or later that really makes a difference. It's a completely different mindset which is more aligned with the overall benefit. Uh, and that's what markets sometimes don't, don't always yeah. uh, work to in favor. Yeah. And so, so Ian, sorry, I interrupted you. Uh, you're, you're just getting into the third effect uh, and, and how it relates to Silicon Valley. Well, the issue I'd like to bring in at this point is actually the profound question of static versus dynamic efficiency. Sure. Because People who are devoted to free market economics or what they think is free market economics throw around this term efficient. And you hear this at the cocktail party level and you find this at the level of very serious academic papers. 
This is efficient. Free markets are efficient. You got to have a free market because it's efficient. Um, they don't actually understand what efficient means. What they fail to grasp is that the use of efficient, which is normally employed in free market economics, is only static efficiency. And what that says is if a given economy has certain productive resources, land, labor, capital, know-how, whatever, what is the best way to deploy those resources to get output? And within that parameter, within that framework of the question, free markets are, generally speaking, very efficient. They're very good at answering the question, what's the right way to play the hand you've been dealt? And that's for production right now, as opposed to longer term. Yeah. Now, the problem is, it's not just a question of short term versus long term. We talked about that before. All these issues we have overlap. So the real problem is not so much the long term per se in the sense of a longer period of time. But the question is, how do you get yourself dealt a better set of cards tomorrow? Because all efficiency, static efficiency is, is what's the best thing to do with the productive resources you got right now? That's an important question, but it's less important than how do you get better productive resources tomorrow? This mm -hmm. is clearest when you look at foreign countries, because economic development is pretty obvious about turning from Burkina Faso into South Korea, not being the most efficient possible Burkina Faso forever. Because if you look at South Korea in 1960, when its principal industries were fish and rice, they did not develop by becoming the world's most efficient rice farmers, though they are very efficient, or the world's most efficient fishermen, though they are today very efficient. They became a rich country by developing an entirely different set of productive resources they didn't have then. They now have some of the world's best steel makers and the world's best car makers and the best makers of smartphones. That's the real economic development problem. And that's what we call dynamic efficiency. And although a great many people are under the misunderstanding that free market economics tells you how to achieve dynamic efficiency, it really doesn't. And this is not just a canard on our part. If you go look at the math, it's all about what's the most efficient thing to do with the productive resources you have. Upgrading to better, different productive resources is a very different question. Mm -hmm. And that's and and the reason the reason the free market doesn't necessarily do that uh, is it because of I mean it's partially going to be the the timelines thing. It's partially going to be who benefits from the upgrade. Like the the upgrades will tend to be more systemic. Because like, if you imagine I'm an investor, you know, as an, there, the, the sort of static efficiency of, of the market as conceived by economics does include the concept of investors who are thinking, well, I have, I have this capital, I'd like to allocate it to kind of build a new factory or whatever that, that will kind of get more out of, out of the, the workers and, and so on that we have. So it does have some level of upgrading productive capacity, but I, I guess there's a bunch of ways that, uh, that, that it doesn't uh, incentivize that. Well, it gets back to the, the to the fact that these these transitions 
Um, they're first, they're different for developing countries as compared to uh, a fully developed country like the U.S. Right. For a developing country, uh, they don't have to invent new technology to move ahead because it's there. Uh, they have the problem of breaking into an industry, uh, right. what we call an advantageous industry, uh, which may require them to sacrifice short-term efficiency. Uh, in other words, for example, protect um, a, a startup in the in the industry we're talking about, uh, so it can get off the ground, and thereby forcing the, their domestic customers to pay higher prices for maybe initially less uh, effective uh, uh, machinery or whatever whatever the product is. But for but for a developed country like the U.S., uh, the only way to move to a a different set, of, a better set of cards, as Ian has called it, is by uh, developing new and better technology. And as we talked about before, the new and better technology is the, the fundamental changes uh, tend, again, not to be produced by the free market alone. Uh, so uh, it, to, to have dynamic efficiency long term, you really need continuing government uh, intervention mm -hmm. to, you know, not just to make the first transition to get to the next level, but, you know, it's all a moving target. So you need to, ideally, you want to, you want the U.S. economy to stay at that frontier, which means you need continuing industrial policy, various forms of government support and, 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 and government initiative uh, to achieve this dynamic uh, efficiency and keep it going. The real issue here is if you want to have a high wage, high output economy, the only way to get that is to be in a limited number of high value added activities, which exhibit increasing returns. Now, that's a very simple concept in the abstract. It just says you're talking about industries where as you increase what you put in, what comes out the other end? Your output of your industry goes up by more than the increase of inputs. Now, most obviously, if you have an industry where knowledge is a big part of your inputs, once you have the correct blueprint for a mechanical device, whether it's a cuckoo clock or a smartphone, you can make additional copies of the device at an ever-increasing incremental cost because you've paid for the development of the knowledge. Right. And this is why all the successful economies, other than people who have small populations and large natural resources like Kuwait, they all have strong positions in high value added, increasing returns industries, which are generally, but not exclusively, manufacturing. And the fact is that it's difficult to break into these industries simply on a market basis. If you are a country that's trying to do this, like South Korea in 1970 or the US in 1870, when the US was a large country, but by no means the economic superpower it later became, you face the fact that there are existing entrenched competitors in these industries that because they're already producing at bigger scale than you are, and they've already made their capital investments, already developed their know-how, 
you're going to have a difficulty breaking into this industry on a market basis alone, which is why nations such as South Korea in 1970 and the U.S. in 1870 pursued a tariff-based developmental strategy. Right. And this is something that's largely been airbrushed out of American history, but the U.S. from its founding until the aftermath of World War II was a tariff-protected economy and did employ many of the same economic development strategies that were used by Korea, Japan, and Taiwan in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and so forth, and are using being used against us by China today. Right. This economics all makes a lot of sense. The Chinese don't do what they do just because they have an evil government, though the regime in Beijing is evil. They do what they do because the underlying economics makes those moves productive, and they were productive for us at one time. And at an absolute minimum, this country needs to understand how those moves work so that even if we don't proactively engage in these kind of strategies ourselves, we can protect ourselves from other nations doing so at our expense. Mm -hmm. So there's there's a bunch of these reasons then there's externalities time horizons systemic effects the the fundamental innovations we've been discussing static versus dynamic efficiency increasing returns these are basically the the uh concepts or the 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 effects that you guys argue in your article are are the reasons the market can't do everything and so if we turn now towards uh industrial policy i guess the idea is that we want to subsidize by one means or another activities that are taking advantage of those effects or that the market isn't going to, uh, the, the activities that are valuable because of those effects, uh, but, but that the market isn't going to invest in again because of those effects. Is that, is that sort of uh, the best way to think about this or, or how should we be thinking about how this how these sort of fundamental market inefficiencies relate to uh, how we do industrial policy. That's a big part of it. Uh, but uh, one of the key points is that uh, you really, to make, have an industrial policy that actually works, it needs to be a whole of government uh, enterprise. By that, I don't mean that every agency has to be doing something but that uh, you can't just think, for example, about subsidizing particular industries. Uh, right now, there's a lot of talk about trying to stand up a, um, a, a global uh, uh, merchant uh, foundry uh, for advanced chip making uh, to compete with uh, the Chinese and the Koreans uh, you know, uh, and, uh, and the Taiwanese. All well and good, but... Those efforts alone won't do it unless, because other countries are trying to exploit these same market failures or market uh, shortcomings to either hold on to the industries they have or to prevent you from getting in, uh, from manipulating their currency or taking advantage of the private sector forces that uh, push the value of the U.S. currency uh, way higher than it that would uh, be if it were at the trade balancing level to uh, subsidizing their own industries. China's doing that on a huge scale in chips to try to break in and, and uh, 
ultimately dominate the advanced uh, uh, computer chip industry. So, uh, yes, uh, you absolutely one form or another of subsidy encouragement, uh, savings, and so on. But these other aspects of policy, which uh, is kind of coming back to the same point, have not been systematically considered uh, in connection with the more direct subsidies to advance our industry, like manufacturing USA, need to be considered, and they haven't, mm-hmm. because you can't really talk about industrial policy. It's it's well, manufacturing is good. good. It used to not matter six or seven years ago when we were talking about nobody cared about manufacturing. You know, it was just software and services. But it's not enough to think about that. The, the whole point is that uh, the array of tools, of industrial policy tools, need to include things like trade policy and how mm-hmm. you're managing your currency and your capital flows. So you kind of need, uh, I guess what you're getting at with this whole government approach is that you need a coherent plan. You need to have some idea of what are the shortcomings, what are the particular shortcomings we're trying to overcome, what are the means we have available through all of the different government agencies and all the different government tools we have available, and then what are the results that we are trying to achieve. And and that's that's inherently kind of this this holistic planning task. Um, and and that's that's what you're getting at, if I, if I understand. I'd like to just correct a, a misimpression that, that may be gener- being generated here. We are not talking about, yes, we're talking about ideally some coherence. We're not talking about uh, some turning the U.S. economy into a command economy, um, you know, with a, a, an industrial policy czar controlling all these different aspects of policy. It, you know, that's not the United States. It would never work. Mm-hmm. You push it too hard, you end up with Goss plan, you know, Russian Goss plan. Um, our objective with the book that's that we're we're working on is to help instill the basic concepts of how industrial policy works, uh, what is different kinds of elements should be in it, how they relate to each other, and to uh, basically get these better ideas uh, a that we need it and b how it should be done. Uh, yeah. into the dialogue, the political dialogue, the economic dialogue, so that when our very decentralized you know, power, sources of power, you know, the committee chairs in Congress, and, you know, on all down, uh, address it, they do it with a better sense of what it should look like. Uh, right. So that while it'll never be perfect, uh, it, it can be a whole lot better, even within our highly decentralized uh, political uh, and governmental system. Right. So even if you don't have a centralized plan, it still helps to have all the parts know what they're doing, basically. Yes. Yeah. And and so I, I guess this kind of leads naturally as also with what you were saying about manufacturing. You know, we want manufacturing in this country. Um, this leads nicely into the concept of advantageous economic activities and, and ac- advantageous industries. So the idea is... You know, with manufacturing, it, it seems intuitively and it's sort of been this idea that people have is like, well, it seems important that we should have manufacturing. Uh, there's some sense in which we've lost something if we're not doing manufacturing. But again, that had never had or at least not recently has not had a 
strong theoretical foundation for why, say, manufacturing is inherently more interesting of an economic activity uh, than finance or software or services. And and what you're trying to do in the in this article and, and in your book then is you're giving a theoretical foundation for which economic activities are the ones that do that are uh, important in that way and why they are important. And so you have this concept of an advantageous economic activity, which is one that is taking advantage of these, these uh, effects that, where the market is not quite going to produce the right answer. And, and, and thereby, the, this activity actually ends up supporting larger development within the economy. Yes, Wolf, that's exactly what our thesis is. And we identify advantageous activities, which are then packaged into advantageous industries, as having six key characteristics. They have high income elasticity of demand. For example, people buy more cars as their incomes go up. They don't buy more milk. What this means is that the demand for that product can rise along with overall income growth in the economy, and it can rise with productivity. You see, the problem with an industry like dairy farming, and agriculture generally has shown productivity increase in the last 60 years. The problem is when you increase the efficiency of production, you just end up driving down the price because people don't consume more of it. The average American consumes roughly 1 billion times the computer power they did in 1950 when the main computer in people's home was their telephone, which is actually an analog terminal of the old Bell network. There's no way people are going to consume a billion times the the quantity of milk or cheese. So that's one of the reasons why manufacturing is an advantageous industry, because you're making products where you can endlessly scale the quality and value of the product and people will consume more of it. As a result, the industry can continue to grow, continue to be profitable, continue to pay high wages. You can't do it. It's scalable. It grows not just in efficiency, but in in volume. It grows in, in total level of activity. And this is essential if you want to create a large number of jobs. The other characteristic is, there are six characteristics, competition not on pure price. When you have pure price for something, pure price competition, what you tend to do is you squeeze the price, you squeeze the margins, you squeeze everything that goes into it, you squeeze the wages, et cetera. I mean, one of the reasons why restaurants pay badly is because they have to be straight up price competitive with every other restaurant at the same level. And so that naturally reflects in low profit margins, reflects in low wages. If you're talking about manufacturing industries, quintessential, and it's not only manufacturing, but it's manufacturing and a few other things. IT services is the biggest non-manufacturing category, but it's not things like agriculture, which can't generate significant numbers of jobs in a developed economy. It's not things like finance, where there's a limit to how many jobs you can create with finance, which is only adding value as a support service to the rest of the economy. But when you get away from pure price competition, you're competing on quality, technology, reliability, reputation, marketing, service, variety, style, a sophisticated understanding of buyer needs, rapid innovation, vendor financing, things like managerial sophistication, good customer relationships, 
When you do this, you make competition based on cheap labor a lot less relevant, particularly cheap right. foreign labor, which is a crucial determinant of, of any traded industry's ability to pay high wages, which is, of course, critical in developed countries. So the the idea there is if you're not in a commodity industry, like another way to say this is it's about whether you're a commodity industry or not. If you're not in a commodity industry, there's many sort of different dimensions of growth. Um, you're not just stuck on cutting costs. Whereas if you're in a commodity, you want to just be maximally efficient. You don't have a lot of ceiling for growth. You don't have a lot of dimensions of growth. Yeah. And if you look across the economy and say, okay, we're trying to find economic activities that have these desirable characteristics, because these are the ultimate underpinnings of sustainable high wages. Manufacturing is the single biggest sector where you can do this. And manufacturing is a bigger sector of our economy than people realize because the standard mm -hmm. statistics that are quoted are misleading on the score because they don't count the inputs into manufacturing and they miscount some of the intermediate output. So manufacturing is still, depending on how you measure it, the single largest sector in our economy. And the easy way to understand this is when people tell you manufacturing is only 12% of the economy. If you think back and say, okay, if you have 3% economic growth, that's about four years of economic growth. So that would logically mean that if you got rid of all manufacturing, you just go back to the economy you had four years ago, which is of course, complete and total nonsense. If you get rid of manufacturing, mm -hmm. the US is no longer a developed country at all. We become, you know, we don't even become Brazil. We become giant Guatemala, which of course is silly. So manufacturing is the sector that's been also neglected the most in the US for various reasons, some of which are cultural. But countries like Japan and Germany have very explicit policies designed to nourish the manufacturing sector. For example, Germany has its famous apprenticeship program, where right. you have high quality, consistent state funded training so that their workers have a super competitive skill level and they're competitive competing with workers who are not that far away. They're just across the border in Poland and Czechoslovakia. The US doesn't have these policies, partly because we look down at manufacturing, partly because we assume that if it made sense, the market would do it. But that's not empirically true. Right, right. And and the reason manufacturing is so important is, uh, you know, beyond its kind of 12% nominal contribution is is that all the support industries, all the inputs to it, all the ways that it uh, sort of accumulates human capital. Th th these are the reasons that I'm just trying to get at what are the reasons that that manufacturing and activities like manufacturing uh, are are important beyond their kind of nominal contribution. Well, one of one of them is that it is besides the U.S. government, it's the sector that supports the most um, uh, science, um, science and technology research. Mm -hmm. um, that, that's that's where it's benefit, and it supports uh, the highest uh, highest end services uh, as well, both technical, uh, you know, legal, accounting, uh, uh, consulting, and so on. So it it is the source of a lot of very high value activities that aren't exactly what people think of as manufacturing. That's very true. And another thing I would like to add here is the US has a trade problem. 
and running a trade deficit of half a trillion dollars a year necessarily means that we're gradually selling off the country's existing wealth and right. we're going into debt to foreigners. And in the meantime, we're running down our productive capacity and destroying jobs. If you want to do something about the US trade deficit, you're not going to do it by exporting business services. And you're not going to do it by exporting commodity agricultural products like soybeans. The high value imports, the high cost imports that have given us this horrendous deficit, they're manufactured goods. And a lot of them come from other countries that are high wage countries now, Germany, Japan, Korea. Yeah, and cars, so computers. Yeah. So if you want to do something about that, it necessarily means you have to increase US manufacturing production, whether you're going to continue to have the high level of imports, but balance that with a high level of exports, or whether you're going to stop importing as many manufactured goods and make them here. That's the only sector in which you can affect that part of the equation. You just can't, you can't do it by building more McDonald's and Kentucky Fried Chicken. You can't do it by, you know, having more hedge funds. Yeah. And some of the some of the features of advantageous industries, for example, uh, economies of scale, are now working in reverse for the US. For example, I talked a little bit earlier about these large uh, uh, merchant foundries that make chips for uh, other chip companies that design but don't manufacture. Uh, there's that's an example where now the economies of scale are not enjoyed by the U.S. Uh, I mean, Intel is fine, but they only make chips uh, for their own, for themselves. Uh, they don't they design them and make them, but all the other U.S. chip companies, uh, many of them, use uh, Taiwan semi semiconductor. Yeah, that's that's TSMC. They and they're they're talking about building a foundry in Arizona, if I understand correctly. That's exactly right. Uh, and uh, in the, the other big rising uh, power there is Korea, and right, and there uh, both of those those industries take huge amounts of money to go to the next generation of chips. Five billion dollars is not enough. You know, since Tanvi, their their plans are investing at thirty to forty billion dollars over the next ten years. China has the same, and there we have no independent uh, competitor. We, have, you know, Intel is the only competitor, and they make the, the chips they they design. We have nothing to compete with TMSC, so we're behind. They have the, econ the economies of scale now, right? So this effort is certainly well motivated and needed. But one of the risks is you know, this has already been tried. For example, Global Foundries in upstate New York, um, New York State put in in various ways, maybe $15 billion over 10 years. And Global Foundries itself invested a lot of money. They gave up competing with TMSC because it was just too much money, and more than that, to catch up and set up the, the latest advance to go down to three you know, three micro whatever it is, dimension chips. So there, we're in the position, I'm kind of in a funny position, of having to subsidize not an infant industry, but a, an industry that's behind. Uh, right. So it works both ways. So we have to not only use it to, to our direct advantage, but fend off other countries that have used 
recognize this and are using the same strategy to, to try to get ahead and stay ahead of us. Yeah, and that, that's interesting. Like we were ahead on on semiconductors for the longest time. You know, we had we had these big companies like Intel who are really at the cutting edge, and it, it seems somehow recently these other countries have kind of managed to muscle in. Uh, you know, partially with our help. I mean, TSMC is. Um, from what I understand, at least I think the, the the kind of like U.S. security establishment it had some hand in that because it's you know they wanted in Taiwan rather than China, for example. But but there there are these other countries basically muscling in on our on our semiconductor manufacturer, and and now we find that Intel is kind of falling behind. They're they're stuck at I think it's. I think it's like 14 nanometers or something, whereas other other these some of these other companies are actually going to, to less than that 10 and 8. I nanometers, think they're I, I think they use a different technology, a different they call it something different. I think right. they're pretty much at the same frontier. But what, oh, okay. we, what we don't have is a merchant foundry uh, yeah. that will make chips that other companies uh, companies design. We have a lot of good chip design con- uh, companies in this country. Yeah, but the actual making of it is we- we've really lost. We've lost that uh, outside of Intel. And right. Of course, and, and one of one of the really critical points about advanced manufacturing is production and design are very closely related because it's an iterative process. You yeah, absolutely. Have a new idea. Well, we can't quite make it. You know that's hard to make. Let's go back and tinker with it. So when you lose production, you also tend to lose innovation over time, and that's one yeah. thing people are afraid. Yeah, and I, I'm just curious how this happened, you know, and, and how that relates to this, and and what kind of policy would prevent that. So somehow we kind of like Intel. Intel didn't become a merchant foundry. It didn't get into that that business. And and it, in some ways, it looks like that's the future of semiconductors. There's going to be many more different types of chips being made, many more custom chips. You see Tesla coming out with their custom uh, AI chip for the self-driving. You see Apple coming out with their custom chips for the iPhone, um, custom chips for, for Bitcoin mining. There's all kinds of things, people going into these custom chips. Um, and and so it was sort of this wave that that... I guess our our semiconductor industry managed to miss, and and so how would you, how would a good industrial policy kind of help catch those waves? You you'd kind of want continued attention on making sure that the industries are large enough and robust enough beyond you know single companies like Intel, where where we'd be able to capture these changes in how how manufacturing is is, is and how technology is changing over time. So it's not just this matter of of kind of breaking into new industries. It's also even keeping the industries that you have. You have to have this element of of uh, dynamism that that again isn't necessarily going to come from the market as we've seen. That's right. And I mean, there are a lot of different tools for industrial policy. One of them is one way to help stand up an industry or expand it is to guarantee a market. And, uh, you know, buy, buy American for chips, you know, broadly stated, uh, meaning the federal government uh, would uh, prefer uh, U.S. producers and give them uh, long-term uh, purchase contracts, which they could finance right. off of and reduce the risk of spending 10 to $20 billion to get to the next level. That, that's one thing. Uh, you can also protect the, the market, in particular chips. 
Uh, it's all complicated because you don't want to stop immediately the flow of something that's essential to defense, say, or, what, or whatever, by putting a tariff on it. But over over time, you could do that as the capacity of U.S. Uh, a U.S. foundry, for example, uh, developed, and you could certainly have, uh, you know, uh, I forget the name, the semiconductor. Uh, uh, research consortium that we had back in the 70s we can have uh, shared Semitech. Thank you, Semitech. Um, to pool, take government money and uh, pool re basic research or the next stage of research that would be shared among U.S. companies. There are many, many tools uh, and they all need to be thought about. And the interesting thing about this particular industry is kind of a you know, at the end of the scale in terms of size of investment, is it maybe one where it's so expensive to stay at the cutting edge that government involvement is necessary not just to stand it up, but to uh, to keep it there over time. That's yeah. certainly what Taiwan Taiwan does, and, and China will certainly do whatever it needs to, and uh, so will the Korean government. It, it's, it's so expensive. It's kind of a, uh, an extreme example, but, but I think quite a, it illustrates a lot of what we're talking about. One of the big issues here is the trade issue, because if you look at industries that were at one point healthy in the United States and which had a reasonable trajectory of proceeding forward onto the next technological iteration of the industry, and which have since sickened, you pretty consistently see the U.S. market being penetrated by foreign countries. Now, obviously, international trade is within certain parameters a good thing, but not when it's pushing you out of highest value industries and you're not getting any other industry in return. I mean, right. I can imagine a scenario in which the US sacrifices one high value industry, but builds up another high value industry in its place. So maybe one country makes product A and sells it to us, and then we make product B and sell it to them. This is, of course, leaving out the national security concerns with things like chips, which really take any decision away from you. But as a result, one of the things you have to do to protect your high-value industries going forward is you have to be much more vigilant on the trade front, and you have to tell the rest of the world you are not going to be given access to our market as a right. This is a privilege we extend to countries which reciprocate for a start that privilege in allowing us to sell into your market with our high value industries. And this is something that the current administration has been the first administration in generations to genuinely grasp. That's why all these tariffs on China and these disputes with the European mm -hmm. Union and so forth are not a waste of time. Some people are looking at it in far too superficial a fashion, but they're not pertaining to the fact that this is what determines which industries in the long run are healthy and which industries are not in your country. And it matters to have these high value industries, which is a concept, by the way, which is bitterly controversial. I mean, Paul Krugman, for example, who would sympathize with some things we would say, and has actually been a major theorist on a purely abstract level of a lot of these ideas, 
bitterly denounces and mocks the idea of high value sectors. He thinks it's the quintessence of bad policy thinking. So that's really where the rubber hits the road in terms of the argument. If you find yourself arguing this with an economist or anyone with theoretical substance in their view of the world, that's what you have to zoom in on. Are certain economic sectors, certain economic activities, certain industries more valuable than others? Question number one. And then question number two, of course, is do you think the free market will automatically serve up to any particular country, including the United States, the most desirable quantity of such economic activities? Because we think it won't. Yeah. And this this really is the, the core of the argument is, is trying to give some foundation to that idea that some industries are more valuable than than sort of their market allocation would uh, would suggest. I would add that the footprints of this idea are very clear in American history. Yeah. I've just been working on our book, the chapters on American history. And far as I can tell, the last major industry that was stood up without massive government help was electrification before World War One, when they first started putting the electric grid in. There was some government help, but I concede there wasn't that much. After the First World War, almost everything that happened had a significant government policy part to it. For example, during the 1920s, there's this whole beautiful forgotten story about Herbert Hoover as Secretary of Commerce. Now, he was president who bungled the response to the Depression, so his reputation is not good. But when he was Secretary of Commerce under President Harding, he said, we should get a decent airline industry going in this country. And remember, this is in a world when airplanes were like dinky little fabric-covered biplanes that <laughs> yeah. people would watch doing acrobatics, and you had these unemployed World War I pilots. So yeah. airplanes in 1920 were a joke. And yeah, they'd only been invented 15 years earlier. Right. And you couldn't create airlines because there were no decent aircraft to fly people around in. And you couldn't float a company building serious aircraft because there were no airlines to buy your product. So Herbert Hoover set out to deliberately create an, air, an airline industry and an aircraft manufacturing industry. It's a twofer here. Right. And what they did, it was actually quite clever. They said, in order to get airplanes developed, we need some way to create demand for air services. But obviously, you can't expect people to fly on these rickety craft. But letters and packages don't care. So mm -hmm. the Postmaster General basically agreed to overpay for airmail so that you could float airlines carrying airmail. And then this was highly paternalistic. I mean, the Postmaster General was basically playing investment banker for a while, telling these little rinky-dink uh, air transport companies to merge, and we will give you the contract if you merge and you agree to do this. And the government set routes, set rates. It was not a free market construct. But out of this comes a viable U.S. passenger airline industry, and it also produces U.S. aircraft manufacturing. I mean, you end up just before World War II with the DC-3 Dakota, which people remember from like Indiana Jones and stuff. It was a 20-passenger twin-engine mm -hmm. passenger plane. It was the first decent one. And this was by far the most advanced in the world. And the story of how America did this, which has largely been forgotten, it's certainly a story that has the profit motive and has entrepreneurs. And nobody here is making an argument for socialism. 
but it is not a free market purist story by any stretch of the imagination. And right. I could go on about other industries. That's a great example. RCA is another one cobbled together uh, by the fiat, by the U.S. government uh, and uh, required pooling of, of patents and uh, basically created a monopoly. Uh, and out of RCA came a huge number of technological advantages. And the government decided that uh, that it needed, you know, bad word now, national champion, but that's what it was for for quite a while. Kind of the uh, AT&T, uh, the AT&T national champion arose more organically, was organized by the head of AT&T, who pulled it together with the consent and agreement of the feds. But the R RCA was basically cobbled together directly by, by, by the feds with a very similar, very similar results. I just want to add one other thing, kind of, uh, we've talked a lot about uh, advantageous industries, uh, and they are key to prosperity and to uh, growth. But of course, that you also need a lot of industries which are less advantageous or some not at all, not, not at all. But one of the targets, one of the objectives of good industrial policy will be to help every industry uh, make the best use of available technology so that as uh, technologies like digitization become more widely available, that every manufacturer uh, is helped to uh, make the best possible use of it. So those industries can become more efficient. Uh, they follow rather than lead. But that's where, uh, in, in, in absolute terms, the biggest gains come when these, these critical technologies spread throughout, right. the, throughout the economy. And, uh, for example, a manufacturing extension program is one thing that the U.S., one policy institution that the U.S. has, which uh, which does pretty good work along that way, the, along those lines. The earlier analogy was the uh, the U.S. Uh, the Ag Services. Now, that was the first, uh, right. first example of that kind of thing. Yeah, one of the fascinating things that we've discovered in researching our book, which should come out uh, in a year, maybe a bit more, is how all the dynamics we're talking about and all the things that these high-tech countries in East Asia are doing today, this stuff goes back centuries. I mean, you can trace it back 500 years to the dawn of modern capitalism in Europe, but you can also see it in U.S. history in the 19th yeah. century. I mean, Lincoln, the only U.S. president to file a patent, was keenly aware of the technological issues of his time, as were other key political leaders. And this is in a world where steam engines might be high technology, but steam power was high technology in a donkey cart world. And it did matter that it had federal support. Yeah, actually, that's, that's interesting. Speaking of the whole tradition of industrial policy, so much of it actually does ultimately come from America. You know, you have the ideas of Hamilton, you have the ideas of List, which then were were kind of the basis for both American growth and then German industrial growth uh, in the 19th century. And then, you know, so much of Japan's industrialization was, again, based on the examples of America and Germany 
Uh, same thing with Korea and and China. They you know they're all over there operating on translations of of list. So uh, it, it's interesting how much you know this. There's nothing sort of un-American, uh, historically speaking, about about this industrial policy tradition. That's true. Uh, although more recently, you can kind of turn it around and say that the only uh, developed countries that haven't had an explicit industrial policy are the, the t- two Anglo con- countries, the UK and the US. But that yeah. doesn't mean we don't have it. But uh, we don't have a coordinated and coherent one. All those yeah. other countries we're talking about, they all get to, the people who were involved all get together and they don't just talk about, you know, manufacturing uh, Korea or manufacturing France or manufacturing Germany. It's, it's uh, okay, what are we going to do to support the middle stand? What are we going to do to support big industry? And now what do we do, need to do with trade policy to make sure that that works? That we don't to support that. Um, and by the way, how's our currency doing? And right. Germany, for example, has an artificially uh, cheap currency, a low-value currency, because it's it's got it's in the euro, uh, and mm-hmm. the euro is dragged down in value by the the, the countries that aren't doing so well economically and don't have big trade surpluses. So they're all they're all thinking about it as a seamless set of policies of all of government and highest uh, people assigned to it. Uh, to thinking about it, it's thought about it as at the highest level of government. Uh, it, it is the big, you know, economic, mm-hmm. it's all one seamless economic policy. And it's not just defense, which is our health, which has been our mission directed way of getting at it. So suppose you guys and, and others, you know, sort of in this discourse succeed at supplying a theoretically rigorous and and uh, popularly understood paradigm of industrial policy for America. Suppose that, that that thing is available. What do you see as kind of political barriers uh, or structural barriers to to that actually kind of getting rolled out into practice? Like, you know, there's there does seem to be a lot of, uh, for one reason or another, political and ideological opposition to the idea. And, you know, some of that is just kind of cultural cultural baggage from just how we've done things over the last 50 years. Some of it is, you know, again, uh, I think you mentioned, Ian, rightfully, we didn't have a good theoretical foundation. So people were objecting to that. But but I, I assume there must be kind of some entrenched interests who perhaps benefit from this current state of affairs or or ideological uh, preconceptions that are that are widely held that will be hard to overturn. Uh, how do you guys see the kind of political angle of this playing out? Well, the first problem we have, because as Maynard Keynes observed some time ago, in the long run, it's not the special interests you have to worry about. It's the bad ideas. The biggest mm-hmm. bad idea we have to deal with is that the US economics profession is an absolute mess with regard to the stuff. They generally don't even write about industrial policy very much. And insofar as they ever do talk about it, it's very generally just dismissive. You should not designate high value sectors. You certainly shouldn't have government try to do anything. So the strategy against this that we've come up with and that I've recommended when I've talked, for example, to Senate staffers, which I occasionally do, is 
to use every form of expertise that deals with economic material that is not a capital E economist. For example, in putting together our book, we've had the help of a couple of dozen people who've been researching and writing parts of it. I don't think we have more than one or two people who actually have PhDs in econ. Instead, we've used area studies specialists, you know, experts on Japan or Korea. We've used industrial journalists. We've used economic sociologists. We've used economic historians. Some of the people working for us are actually engineers by trade. I'm a a computer programmer on my day job. Some of our people are international lawyers or what have you. So it's a kind of giant end run around the economics profession Mm -hmm. to gather up all the economic expertise that is not capital E economics. And that's how I would do it on the intellectual side. On the practical side, I think the biggest impediment is international capital and multinational corporations, which don't really have that much self-interest invested in the success of the U.S. per se, because to them, the U.S. is just another market. It's just another production platform. It might be a convenient location for the headquarters. But if there are tax advantages in moving to Ireland or moving the plant to Guangdong, then hey. So what I think those people are going to get relentlessly squeezed. They've had a kind of halcyon era the last 20, 30 years because they've been able to do what they want all over the world. The problem is we're now hearing from American businesses, American headquartered businesses, I should say, operating in China that they're having the squeeze put on them by the Chinese who are not letting them make as much profit as they used to. They're getting pushed aside by China's indigenous companies in their market sectors. And my expectation is this is only going to get worse because the only reason China was cutting them any slack is because they had something China wanted. And going forward, the world is going to be carved up in a pretty rigorous way so that these multinationals are not going to be able to just frolic around the world as they have been. They're only going to get anywhere if they have the backing of a strong nation state that is willing to support their ambitions and provide political and economic leverage to protect their interests. And more importantly, they're only going to have a market which is politically guaranteed to them, which means they're going to forced they're going to be forced to figure out whether they're American companies or European companies or Asian companies. And mm-hmm. the long run result of this is I think most of them will choose to be American companies. The American market is still the most attractive. And I don't see any way around the fact that the world is going to be inexorably pushed back to a more nation-state oriented version of capitalism. Now, this doesn't mean a kind of dumb economic nationalism of which history provides some examples, but it does mean that if markets aren't going to do everything, the state is going to do a lot of what counts and states are national. So I think the world is going to be pushed back to a more nationalist form of economics. And when that happens, they're going to want to employ the tools that we advocate because these are the tools that work. They're the same tools that everybody around the world trying to accomplish the same thing. 
uses. So there was sort of this this moment in history where there was, I guess, an international moment where, where, like you were saying, these kind of multinational companies could could avoid the question of which, who is their political patron, so to speak. And I think China, you know, the, the changes in, in the overall kind of international situation over the last 30 years, and then in particular, the rise of China, where China is is very clear on the relationship between industry and government, which is to say, uh, they, they very clearly subordinate industry to to their political interests, uh, has, has kind of forced the issue. And I think yeah, I think we're, I think you're right that we're likely to see that issue being forced from from other governments as well. You know, in, in America in particular, but but all around, we're we're seeing this this like you say a a return to large powerful governments taking seriously their their role of of kind of uh, command over over some of these um, these companies, like like or at least their their political um deal making and, and allegiances and and those companies are going to be in turn be forced to, to kind of sort out their political allegiances right at the smaller level you can see it happening in the expansion of the authority of the committee on foreign investment in, in the united states mm-hmm. uh, the, the other thing that is dying uh, that will uh i think uh, promote a general uh Re, re-examination of the free trade attitude, uh, free markets attitude toward everything is the illusion that both parties have had for 30 years that if we just let, you know, that we promote free trade, other countries will, and we we act more, more like free traders than, than they do, they will come around to our point of view, you know, the Washington consensus. Uh, I think that's dead. Finally, I mean, it should have right. died a long time right. ago. But if you don't no longer believe that, and you see that other countries are using this whole panoply of industrial policy techniques from trade to currency to you know promoting that manufacturing and other and innovation, you're kind of forced to. There's no mm-hmm. alternative. Uh, and and we because we have our own currency and such a and we're such a rich country. We've been able to manage, uh, not well, but survive while being the market of last resort for countries that are uh, using, uh, you know, a a production-driven development strategy Mm -hmm. where they suppress consumption and put it all into investment in manufacturing. And because their own population doesn't have the money to buy their products, the only they, they they sell it uh, to the rest of the world, and that's mainly meant the U.S. Well, that's coming to an end uh, too. So my view is that the economic doctrine <laughs> will follow for two reasons: for the kind of pressure we've just decided, and you know, people's careers end, and newer, newer new economies yeah. come up through school, and you know, the wind's blowing in a different way, and, or they're they're paid to to answer different questions, which is how it actually happens, and that's how the doctrine shifts. Yeah, that, I think that's a really important point. What you just raised that there was this whole political dimension, an international geopolitical dimension to the free trade um, orthodoxy. There was this theory that if we, you know, if we do trade and, and allow everyone else to get rich, they will also come around to our our political consensus, and and you know, we all become allies. And uh, and and that has has been 
I think fairly definitively refuted by by China's rise and and how China thinks about its economic development. It's it's not kind of turning into a liberal democracy as a result of being rich. It's it's quite determined to to stay uh, you know socialism with Chinese characteristics. And it's not just China. To to I mean all of our friends, our real yeah. friends, you know, Korea, Germany, France. Yeah, they they tend to give lip service to free markets and you know and free trade. But they they don't believe in it. I mean, that's not how they think about their economies should develop and how they had them help them develop in the past. Yeah, you sort of you sort of get this effect where Germany can can kind of speak fluent American in economics, but then they turn around and and their central banks are thinking, all right, what industry are we investing in and building up today? Exactly. The final topic I'm I'm kind of curious about is just getting back into that what happened to the economics profession and and you know is it is it simply that that you know the economists were paid to answer a certain set of questions for a while and and that's how it ended up or or is there something more constructural or concerning about how how the whole economics profession ended up kind of captured by by this particular way of looking at things that that is writing off industrial policy like what 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 drove that? What's driving that? Is are there going to be are there going to have to be like disruptions or changes in in how the thing is organized and 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 sort of who's dominant in there as 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 the doctrine changes? One force in its in this evolution uh, is physics envy among right. economists. Hard science, it's exact, it's mathematical. So the problem is that especially with uh, technological change uh, or, or what's called growth by economists, which p- people now concede, and this is fairly recent, comes from technological change. You can't fit that into a mathematical model. So uh, you didn't get your, you don't get your PhD unless you do, uh, I'm overstating obviously, but uh, there's a lot of reality in this. Uh, the way you got ahead in economics, including international economics, is is to do mathematical models, and they can be incredibly useful in for certain things, especially where the, you can really get the parameters, the inputs right. But they don't fit for growth, and therefore they don't fit for technological change, because you can't really quantify this stuff. So it's gotten ignored. And as, as Ian said a couple of times, I think we say this in the book, none of the things that we talk about are run counter to conventional economics. It's sort of the, the, the part of the, the knowledge that's stuck away in the basement or in the attic mm-hmm. because they don't know what to do with it. And it, it doesn't fit what pays off for economists. And I think, you know, there's always influence of uh, big companies support a lot of uh, economic economists. They ask for papers and right, they right. don't ask for papers on, on uh, industrial policy and neither does the government. And government, it's been a kind of a third third rail word that you just didn't want to touch for a long time. When we started on this, Ian and I have been at this stand in one way or another for at least 15 or 16 years. It was like verboten. No, no politician would talk about it. Now it's coming right. back. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I guess relating to the international capital point uh, you're making that you know some of these companies are going to be f- funding uh, funding economists to 
you know, answer certain questions that are of obvious interest to them. And and like you said, they're not necessarily interested or they might be interested against industrial policy. One of the interesting things that I've discovered in the course of researching this is that there's a real split in the history of industrial policy between the development of academic ideas and the development of the actual policy tradition. Mm -hmm. Some economic positions, like the purest free market position, or for that matter, the Marxist position, have incredibly rich bodies of theoretical elaboration attached to them. The industrial policy position has a relatively small quantity of theory, and all the brain power has been invested in actually doing it. There's a very rich tradition of people actually doing that going back 500 years. I can show yeah. you continuity between the policies of the Venetian Republic in the 16th century and 21st century Taiwan. I really can. Wow. But there's no great list of theoreticians. Uh, I mean, there are some people, Friedrich List, who's actually kind of intellectually mediocre. He's right, but he was not a gifted writer or a gifted theoretician mm -hmm. on the scale of, you know, Adam Smith or, or even Karl Marx for that matter. And the reason is the people who've principally been concerned with industrial policy are people who are trying to govern countries and develop economies. And they made some use of theoretical constructs and they sometimes wrote down what they were doing and why. But it's not like there's a giant academic school of thought out there, which is what a lot of people tend to expect that if you've got a different policy, there's got to be a different school of thought, different famous people, different institutions. And hmm. that's not entirely untrue for what we believe, but there's only about 10% as much theory as there is for the laissez-faire position. And frankly, this is okay because when you make the economic assumptions we do about how the world works, which are in abstract terms, multiple equilibrium assumptions, which basically mean that the facts that count are contingent facts about human decisions. They're not things you can predict just from saying, this is the market, this is supply, this is demand. Now we know what's going to happen. The relative value of abstract theory is a lot lower than it is for the market purist oriented view, where you can hmm. proliferate vast quantities of abstract thinking just at a chalkboard and think you're adding value. In our faction, our circle, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, there's a certain room for abstract thinking. And the article that we wrote for Palladium embodies a fair chunk of that. Mm -hmm. But we do not lay nearly as much emphasis on abstract theoretical constructs as our opponents, because all the facts that really count turn out to be contingent. It's like, how do three nanometer computer chips work? What's the difference between manufacturing an electric car and a gasoline powered car? These turn out these industry specific facts. And what does this industry need to thrive? What is the technological trajectory of this industry going forward? That is not stuff you can construct all that much abstract economic theory about. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So I think we're running out of time. I'd like to kind of wrap up here. If you guys have anything final to say, we can get into that. But otherwise, it's been great to have you on the show. Uh, this has been very informative. Uh, I'm really looking forward to reading your book when it comes out. 
Oh, pleasure being on your show. Very good to be with you, Wolf. Well, then let's wrap it up. This has been a great conversation. I, I'm looking forward to continuing to build on the, the ideas you put out in your article. Uh, I think it's going to be a great foundational piece for a lot of future discussion. Uh, I'm looking forward to see how, how that whole discussion evolves. Uh, I'm very glad to have you guys on. Hope the audience uh, learned something. So thank you so much, guys. We'll wrap it up. That's all for now. 